Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple." For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, to false witnesses that rise up against me, sprouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here, and we're glad to have you. It's good to be together, even if it's cold, even if there's a little bit of snow out there. It's finally beginning to actually feel like winter, um, so it's good. But uh, Happy New Year as well. For those of you who made a, a resolution to go to church more, congratulations. You've already started, and you're on the right foot. It's great to have you with us. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 27. Next week, we're actually going to start a new series looking at the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the King and His Kingdom. But today, I just want to unpack that psalm, Psalm 27. And I'm grateful that we can read it in this place together because the truth is, it's probably gonna speak a whole lot louder than I ever could. But my hope today is that as we unpack it, we could be shaped and formed through the Holy Spirit as we, as we just sit in his word and his truth. So here's what I wanna do. Here's why I picked this song. is because I really do believe that there's something stunning about this psalm, this song because what it talks about, if you look at it, you would think it's about vindication from enemies. You would think it's about safety, right, from war and violence. But if you keep reading, it's not about those things at all. It's about beauty. David, this warrior king, is writing this song about this beauty, this stunning beauty that he has seen that's so precious, so desirable, that it has changed his entire life forever. It's all he wants. It's all he asks for. In fact, you will notice that the anxiety, the stress, the fear that he probably should have been feeling has no power over him at all. So today we're going to unpack how David could have such a confidence, such a joy, such a delight in his depressing circumstances. How, how in the world could he go from having, being in this place of 
of tumultuous an environment into a place of such delight. Okay, so we're going to look at the, uh, the uh, purpose of beauty, the pursuit, or the person of beauty and the pr- pursuit of beauty. Okay, so I know I messed that up, so let me help you. We're going to do the purpose of beauty, the person of beauty, and the pursuit of beauty. So let's look at the purpose of beauty. If you're already in your Bibles in, in Psalm 27, uh, you can just open those right back up. Look right, look right back there, and we're going to start in verse 2, because I want to just point, point out something really quickly, even though we just read it, that I think is important. So check out what it says. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now look here at what David is saying. He's saying, I have enemies all around me. Wicked men are at my door. War is brewing, and yet none of it phases him. He says, I really just have one thing. I just want one thing. I want to look at the Lord. I want to be in his house. I want to see his beauty. He says, regardless of the things that are going on around me, that's what I'm seeking. This man has every reason to be anxious and stressed and concerned, but he isn't at all. It's amazing. He's, all he's concerned about is getting back into the house of the Lord so he can look at him so we can see his beauty. Man, is David a complete idiot? (laughs) Like this man's world is falling apart. He is in war, but all he wants is to get to church and look at God. But the truth is, that's what beauty can do. That's part of the power that beauty possesses. It can make everything that is ugly completely fade away. And if you've ever experienced beauty in this way, you know it to be true. I know this might sound silly, but I grew up in a pretty big family. We drove everywhere. And I remember going on an airplane for the very first time. I was in college. And I was a little bit nervous, but I sat by the window and I just remember seeing the whole world shrink away. It was amazing. I remember standing on this stage, watching my bride walk down the aisle as we were surrounded by the people we loved and we were leaving behind our independent lives so we would belong to one another now, live on behalf of the other. Nerve-wracking but beautiful. I remember when my my son was born, my first son was born, not the other two because I'd already experienced it. So my first son, when my first son was born, if anyone knows me, they know like I'm not a very emotional person, but man, I was a puddle. It was an amazing thing to see this living soul come into the world unique down to the very fingerprints. Everything that happened before him just melted away as my wife and I just looked into the face of this beautiful child. You see, these things are beautiful, not just because they are aesthetically pleasing, not just because of what they look like, but because of what they actually mean. When you see the world from 30,000 feet in the air, it reminds you of the great magnitude of where we are, but also our own smallness. When you join in a union with someone, it, it, you experience a love that, that few others will ever rival. And when you see a child born out of two genetics mixing together, I mean... You just realize how complex and amazing that life truly is. There's a mysterious profundity to it all. You see, beauty silences the world around us. It takes us in, it captures our affections and we are flooded with that joy and the awe and the wonder and delight of knowing it. Our attention is directed toward it and we realize in that moment in some strange way that we actually lacked something without it. 
but like we actually soar to new heights and we see everything else a little bit clearer than we did before. This is what beauty does. This is part of the purpose of beauty. You see, what we find most beautiful, we desire. And what we desire, we pursue. And this is, I think, what David has come to realize. Like the war and the enemies and the violence threatened to take things away from David, but he experienced God in such a way that he realized they could take nothing away from him. Nothing meaningful. So long as he just had this God. Even more than that, despite the anxiety and the fear and the stress and the despair that like should have invaded circumstances like his, when he prays to God, he doesn't talk about any of those things. He doesn't say destroy my enemies. He doesn't say give me strength. He doesn't say bring me to safety. He says, give me you, God. All else follows. He says, if I have you, I will have light and I will have salvation and I will have strength. And so what I need right now is not a way out of my circumstances. It's a way into the Savior to behold him, to see him, to be changed by him. So let's look at this person of beauty, the person of beauty. It says in verse four, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Now it's pretty clear who the person of beauty is, it's God right? But I want you to notice something that is scattered throughout this entire song. Listen to what it says again in verse four. It says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now look at that word Lord. That is used 12 times in this 14 14 verse psalm. That's a lot. This is important to David. But I also want you to recognize that this word is in all capitals, which you may or may not know, but when Lord is in all capitals in your Bible, it is actually not just a title, but the very name of God. It's Yahweh. Which means what David is pointing out is that the God that he's speaking to is not just some impersonal God. It's not just some, some thing in the sky. It's not some impersonal force or energy or some unknown God among many. This is the God of Israel. This is Yahweh. This is the God who has made himself known. And when David throws up his prayers, it's not just, he's not just hoping somebody hears him. He knows that the God of the universe who he has personally experienced and who personally knows him is hearing every single word. This is the God. This is the person of beauty. But you'll notice something else. He says that he actually hasn't seen God. He's just experienced God, but he hasn't seen him. He wants to in light of his experience. Like that's what this whole song is about, really. It's a love song of sorts. And he talks about the attributes of this God that he has experienced. He said, God is a God of light, which means he has given clarity and color to David's world. It means God is the metric by which he measures right and wrong, by which he sees what is beneficial or harmful. God is the path. God is the way. But he says that God is also salvation. Like he's been saved by God over and over again from Goliath to Saul to the neighboring nations around him. But he isn't just talking about physical rescue either. Like this is what we know from Psalm 51, right? That, that famous Psalm of confession that David, even when he was caught in an affair, even when he was caught in a murder plot, was saved even in that moment spiritually. He had been rescued from, from himself, from his ego, from his sin. And he says, God is a a stronghold. You see, David no longer has insecurity about himself or what might happen to him because he has experienced God in such a way that he has this natural confidence. And it's not arrogance. 
because he recognizes he had nothing to do with it. It wasn't because he was intellectually or politically savvy. It wasn't because he was wealthy or attractive. He was most of those things from what we understand. And yet he recognizes that every single one of them would have failed him against the enemies that surrounded him. His true confidence, his only hope comes from God. And so he desires him. God was his light and his salvation and his stronghold. You see, David has experienced God in such an incredible way that now it's his only pursuit in life. It's to get eyes on him. He's experienced that warmth. He sees all else of reality and creation by this worldview and this framework of who God is. But now he wants to stare into the sun and he wants to look at the magnitude and the power and the glory and the strength of an almighty king like this. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Experienced something that has motivated you to seek and to pursue at all costs? I remember when my son was my son Keller was three years old and we had just, you know, we got this pack of gum and my wife and I were just open it up, you know, popping some in our mouth, but he, my three-year-old wanted to try it. So we just tore off a little bitty piece, you know, gave him a little bitty piece and nothing, nothing crazy. Put it back in the drawer, went to, you know, about our day, went to bed that night, got up the next morning, went to work. And then I get a call from, from my wife. She had found a mountain of foil in Keller's closet. Apparently at some point he had gotten up in the middle of the night grabbed that freshly opened 32-piece pack of gum and devoured the entire thing. Taste makes an appetite, doesn't it? You see, the reason that identifying the true person of beauty is so important is because the world is so willing to give you a taste of false beauty. You see, if true beauty is what it is because it addresses the most personal parts of our lives and the deepest needs of our soul, the world is full of counterfeit images. And I have found that my own appetite is far too often for cheap imitations. In the first book of Harry Potter, uh, Harry finds this mirror. Now you need some, some, probably some helpful information. Harry's parents died when he was a baby. He was raised in an abusive family for most of his life after that. But when he goes to school, this wizarding school, and he finds this mirror, he is taken back by it. Because in it, he sees his parents and he experiences that sense of belonging and love that he felt was absent his entire life. And he goes and he tells his friend Ron and he invites Ron to go look into the mirror. And so Ron comes and he looks into it and he's like, do you see my parents? And Ron's like, no, I don't see your parents. I see myself. I'm on the shoulders of all my classmates. I'm like the athletic champion. I'm the valedictorian of my class. He's like, you don't think that this mirror tells the future, do you? And Harry's like, how could it? My parents are dead. Ron leaves after they talk for, after a little while and Harry just sits there looking into the mirror and finally Dumbledore, the wise sage, shows up and he explains to Harry what this mirror is. This mirror shows you the deepest desires of your heart. He says, great men have wasted away staring into it. I wonder if you were to look into the mirror, what would you see? You see, the problem with so many of our pursuits in life is not that we seek bad things. Like wealth and relationships and accomplishments and comfort, these are good things. But the problem is when they become ultimate ones. You see, the only reason we would ever stop desiring God is because we have fashioned something else into one. 
We don't think we actually need him. We misidentify the deepest needs of our soul to creation instead of creator. And these things, then they drive us, they consume us. And those desires, those objects just aren't meant to bear the weight of our desires. They're simply too small for them. So what ends up happening is if we get them, they are unsatisfying. If we get them, maybe we're afraid that they'll be taken from us. So we have anxiety or stress. Or probably for a lot of us, we fail to get them. And so we're left in embarrassment or despair. They'll all be taken, either by our own mortality or by its. But listen, this is why God makes, is, is, is the superior person of beauty. This is why God is the only thing that could truly address the deepest needs of our soul. Because he is both of great magnitude and yet great humility. He is truth and justice. He is grace and love. He is the father and friend. Because God is infinite, he can be constantly consumed and yet never exhausted. Because he is good, he can only nourish. Because he is all powerful, he can always protect. Because he is all wise, he gives us everything we need in the most perfect ways at the most perfect times. And he is love, which means he will never withhold himself from us. And he is life, which means not even death will separate you from him. This is the eternal God, the creator, which satisfies every part of our hearts everything that creation was unable to. And this is who David experienced. Like a three-year-old and the taste of gum, he had an appetite for the holy, for the beautiful, and he wanted more. And so how does he get it? How do we get it? How can we behold the beauty of God and have the same sort of confidence and delight that David has? Let's look at the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of beauty. Now it says that David's pursuit really starts with him trying to get back to the, temp, to the temple or the tabernacle at this time. Now this would have been a challenge for most people in Israel, let alone the surrounding nations around him, because the formal presence of God was actually geographically limited. If they wanted to worship God, they had to go to the place God was going to decide he was going to be. This is what Deuteronomy 12 says. It says, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Now, this isn't a small piece of land. Like this is the size of New York, maybe bigger. And what he's saying is if you want to worship God, if you want to experience him, you have to go to the place he's going to decide to be. And you have to do that pretty much on foot. You had to try. And this ended the pursuit for most people. The geographical limitations were simply too much. People just didn't experience God. And because they didn't experience God, they just kind of heard about him. Heard stories maybe of who he was or what he had done, but they just, they didn't get him. And so their desire waned. About a month and a half ago, my wife and I got to go to New York and we got to go to the Museum of Modern Art. And I don't know if we have any modern art fans in the house, uh, but this guy ain't one of them, okay? That stuff is weird, all right? (laughs) So let me just give you a few examples. So the first thing, not, maybe not the first thing we saw, but pretty early on, we saw these pantyhose filled with that, like sand and then stapled to a wall. The second thing uh, that I thought was funny was there was this TV. And on the TV, it was on this table. And on the TV was this bowl and it just had a bunch of ice cubes in it. And then on front of the TV, like on the table in front of the TV was the same bowl, but with water in it. So I'm assuming that was like the ice melted, I think. The third thing, which this is the weirdest one, this is the strangest one. It was a shelf 
with several jars on it. And in these jars were hair clippings and fingernail and toenail clippings that had been saved since this, this piece started. And the last thing that was going to complete this piece was going to be the ashes of the person who created it after she died and was cremated. Some weird things, some strange things. And if you're hearing me describe objects like this, you're probably feeling similar to what I did. Like, what? How is this art? How was it beautiful? Apparently somebody thinks it's beautiful. But the truth is, this is how most people feel about God. They don't get it. They kind of know him. They've heard some stories maybe, but they've never experienced him. And so they'd have no desire of him. See, the truth is that beauty, it directs our desires. And our desire directs our pursuits. And sometimes we just forget that it's sometimes hard to desire God to see his beauty faithfully. And so, so much of our world, they don't get it. Maybe you felt like this before. Maybe you feel like this right now. You see, this is typically why we pursue the lesser beauties. These other things, man, they're marketable and they're available. And they may not last long, but at least they give us the hit we need, like the bit of endorphin boost that we long for, that promise to feel anything at all. But as soon as we trust in these things, those feelings of anxiety and stress and despair, then they come raging back and we want what David has. We want that beauty he is seeking that will take away all of those feelings of inadequacy and despair. And it certainly wasn't easy to experience God. Like you had to really try. You had to pursue God if you were going to get to him. But then even once you got to the, to the temple or the tabernacle, there were still limitations. There were still obstacles. Even if you got near, they're like, you didn't really have access This place was designed to be holy and to tell you how holy God was. It was designed to be beautiful, but also show you how ugly you were. It was a stunning place. Moses talks about how stunning it is in Exodus 26. He says the curtains that would have basically made the walls of this place were blues and purples and scarlets. He says that they would have been hung on beams and hooks that were overlaid with gold and surrounded by tables and candelabras and dishes that were overlaid with gold. And in this place, there were two rooms separated by a curtain and embroidered on the center of that curtain were cherubim, angels, powerful spiritual beings, because these angels were separating the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God would be, where he would dwell, because this was his palace. All the beauty was pointing to it. And the angels were a reminder of what was guarding the way, just like the angels placed at the Garden of Eden that wouldn't let humanity back into the presence of God. He was limiting it, not for his protection, but for ours. His holiness would have devastated us. That's why sacrifices were necessary. We weren't allowed in. In fact, only one person was allowed in once a year, and it was the high priest. And this was such a terrifying process that they would actually tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he died, they could pull his body out. The procedures were numerous. And you had to wash off before you even came close. You had to offer sacrifices, both because of the unintentional mistakes you made and the intentional sins you committed. And there was always an animal on the fire so that every part of your sense was engaged. The smell, the sights, the touch, the taste, every part. You see, this place was supposed to remind us everything about it, the great holiness of our God, but it also reminded of the great sin that was on us. And this is why David says in verse seven, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. 
My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my savior. He's asking God for a chance because he wants to see something beautiful because he recognizes that when something beautiful enters your world, it literally changes everything. But has he ever, ever considered what happens when the grotesque enters the world of the beautiful? Like, of course we want to look on God, but could God bear to look on us? Do you see how bold David is being here? He's asking God to show him his face. He wants to look at beauty. But how could God ever let him see his face? He's praying, don't reject me, don't forsake me. Don't turn your, don't turn your face from me. But how could David ever get that close without being crushed? How could a man this marred by sin ever get that near to a God of beauty and holiness like this? How could we? Because the pursuit of beauty does not begin with us, it begins with God. You see, the pursuit of beauty is not how high we climb, it's how low he would descend. You see, Jesus would leave all of the trappings, all of the glory, all of the beauty, abandon it altogether so he could take on our filth. This is what Isaiah 53 says. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, Jesus became filthy so that we could become beautiful, so that we could be with the beautiful. And the only reason David's prayer can be answered yes is because of what Jesus did on the cross when he took our place, when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When on the cross, he was rejected. When on the cross, the father turned his face away so he could direct his gaze on us. And at that moment, the grotesque became gorgeous. We were made beautiful. Not because we fabricated a beauty of our own, but because we received it from the maker himself. And we reflect that light that now beams toward us. And instead of shattering us, it changes us. It's Jesus who makes it possible for us to see the person of beauty without being crushed by it. See, this is why Matthew's account says, it says in, in uh, verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That beautiful curtain that guarded the way, the angel that stood at the entrance, it was opened, it wasn't there anymore. And the point is not that we can now go to the temple and go in. The point is now that God can come out, that God comes out and he looks on you, that now he takes up residence in the lives of every single person who would call him king. This is what Jesus' death and resurrection means for people like us. Because beauty is not reduced to that which just looks good and is aesthetic, but to a vision of that which addresses the most personal parts of our lives and the deepest needs of our soul. 
And the cross, it gives us a window into a God whose love and justice and grace and truth all coalesce into one single moment where our soul both receives what it desperately needs, but where he also destroys what was keeping it in bondage. God leaves the geographical limitations and indwells us. And we experience that light and that salvation and that strength and that stronghold. And we become a city on a hill. A king is now our, our worship directed to him. And we're a kingdom. And when you realize what you yourself have become, there will be no other response than to long to look at the king who has saved you. And you will have every confidence in the world that you will. This is why David says this in verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You see how this Psalm pivots? Like it's about David seeing God, but then he actually encourages those who join into the song. This song becomes our song. Now it might seem silly because we don't know that David ever did see God's face in the land of the living. So was this confidence in vain? Absolutely not. You see, the resurrection of Jesus means that David received the same victory we did. Christians are fundamentally resurrection people following a resurrecting God. And the climax of all history will be when that king returns and we will see him face to face, taste his light, his salvation, his beauty. Because a life desiring God is what defines a life of discipleship with him. And our hope is that when you look into the mirror, you wouldn't even see yourself at all. But the God who possesses all that we need and all we could want. We're starting a new year and we don't want you to forget that the beauty of God is the most desirable thing that will ever fulfill our lives. And the thing that we find most beautiful, we will desire. And the thing we desire, we will pursue, but that is hard. That's why this place exists because we are the church, not the building, to help run this race till we see that king face to face. If you wanna know more about that, if you wanna know more about what any of this means at all, we will always have ministers at those back tables that are willing to pray with you and speak with you about finding completeness in a God who has so freely offered that completeness to people. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.